0: So, four words, grace, 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 grace. Three Bible verses, John 1, 14. and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.16, And of His fullness we have received grace upon grace. John 1.17, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Those are The only four occasions in the four Gospels that the word grace is found. In other words, grace is not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and only in the poetic prologue of John's Gospel. More significantly, that means Jesus never spoke the word grace. His life, however, was the very embodiment of the grace of God. Jesus was the grace of God walking in sandals, walking the world as the pardon of God. All of Jesus' actions were expressions of grace, whether it's turning water to wine or healing the leper or raising the dead. And those parables, those Stories of curious grace. The parables, you understand, are not simple illustrations. In fact, this may be simply Jesus, but there's nothing simple about the parables. The parables are not simple illustrations, much less are they lessons with a moral. They're nothing like that at all. In fact, what they really are are these fascinating, beautifully, brilliantly crafted stories that are designed to disorient us? Throw us we begin to lose our balance when Jesus tells those stories. They always have a 9 Shamala ending. Whoa, I didn't see that coming. I see dead people. Jesus wants to disorient us from the matrix of our assumptions of how the world simply is and must be. Jesus wants to disorient us with his stories that he might coax us into the parallel universe that he calls the kingdom of God. I want to talk about one of those parables. It's the parable that comes after the most popular of parables, which I would suggest is the parable of the prodigal son. The one that comes next, following immediately after that, is generally known as the parable of the dishonest manager. I would suggest that a more appropriate title might be the parable of the prodigal manager. I'll show you why in a moment. But the story itself this story of a curious grace goes more or less something like this. Once upon a time, there was a very wealthy landlord. As a landlord, he had, of course, his renters. And so expensive was his operation that our wealthy landlord had a manager to oversee his affairs. But it turns out that this manager hired by the landlord to oversee his his affairs was, we're told, wasting his possessions. The same phrase that is used for the prodigal son when he's off in the far country, wasting the father's possessions. Here we have the manager wasting the landlord's possessions. Prodigal manager. The implication might be that he was keeping it, some of it, anyway, for himself. We would call it embezzlement, I think, today. Well, eventually, the manager is caught, brought before the landlord. The landlord says, what is this I hear? i uh, give a full accounting of what you've been doing. I want to see the books. Oh, and by the way, you can no longer be the manager. Well, the manager's got to think fast. Now, he doesn't know what to do. He says, uh, I like what he says. Uh, Basically, he says, I'm too weak to dig and too proud to beg. Sounds like a blues song or something, you know. And He's got to think fast, and he comes up with a plan, and the plan is brilliant. It's more brilliant than you think. Watch. He says, okay, here's what I'm going to do, because he's got a few days where he's still on the job because he has to present an accounting to the landlord, The landlord didn't immediately jail him. That's interesting. And so he he concocts this scheme. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I will lower people's rents. I will reduce their debts. I will ingratiate myself to them so that when I lose my position, I can kind of bounce along from house to house as a house guest and thus be saved. And so he embarks upon this project, and he begins to tell people, guess what? The landlord and I have been considering your situation, and we realize how how rough things are today. You're you're paying $1,000 a month. Okay, how about... I tell you what, we're going we're to lower that to $500. Does that sound good to you? Yes, that sounds wonderful. And he says, now, I understand that you're about $2,000 behind. Uh, you have a debt to the landlord. The landlord and I were talking about it, and we feel like, you know, we could at least cut that in half and make things a little easier for you. And so what is the manager doing? He is preaching good news about the landlord to the renters. Of course the renters hear it as marvelously good news. I'm sure they are delighted. They are happy for all I know. They throw a party. There might even be a fatted calf involved. I don't know. Finally, the manager is found out by the landlord, which, by the way, the manager always knew would happen. Now we're starting to see the real brilliance of his plan. When the landlord discovers that the manager has, of his own accord, preached to the renters that the landlord is going to have grace and mercy and reduce debts and all of that sort of thing, the landlord is in a strange position. He has two choices. One, he can jail the manager and then go tell the renters the good news that you have heard is a fraud and then allow their happiness and joy to turn to sorrow and anger. Or the landlord can play along with this shrewd guy. Just go ahead and play along with the scheme of the manager and allow this goodness to befall his renters and enjoy his new reputation as a gracious landlord. Do you see the brilliance of it? The manager is betting everything on the fact that he thinks his landlord actually is a gracious man and that he wants to be known as a gracious man. He was gambling everything on grace. Now the question is, what was the landlord like? Well, as it turns out, I think, that the father of the prodigal son was gracious. The boss of the prodigal manager was gracious. The question then, though, becomes, what is God like? The prodigal son had a gracious father. The prodigal manager had a gracious boss. What kind of God do we have? And I think the answer is this. We have the kind of God that we preach to others to be. God will be to us as we preach Him to the other. Not to us, but to the other. There's always the other. The sinner. The outsider. The one who doesn't measure up. The one who doesn't belong. The one who isn't in our tribe. The one who isn't one of us. God will be to you who you preach Him to be to the other. I can see the wheels turning. I mean, what if it's true that the measure you use Is how it will be measured back to you. It is true. You can find whatever God you're looking for in the Bible. If you just say, well, I just believe in the God of the Bible. I say, well, which one? Because you can find Jonathan Edwards' angry God holding sinners in his hand and dangling them over the fires of hell. If you want to find that God in the Bible, I can show you where to find him. But you can also find Father Zosima's God, who is nothing other than continual self-giving love. That God is to be found in the pages of Scripture also. So that leaves us with a question. What is God like? Well, I take you back to where I started. Gospel of John. Let's start with the first verse this time. In the beginning, you know, you got to love John who is composing his memoir, the fourth gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have done their part. But decades have gone by, and he is going to begin his memoir, his contribution to the canon of gospel with in the beginning. You're a Jew, and you start your book in the beginning that's chutzpah. That's, you know, it takes nerve to do that. In the beginning, because, you know, they already have a book that starts that way. <laughs> In the beginning was the word, the logos, the concept, the idea, the logic of God. In the beginning was the logos, the logic of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. Merry Christmas. The Word became flesh, and lived among us, joined us, became one of us. And we saw it. We beheld it. We were there. We are eyewitnesses. We beheld His glory, His beauty, as of the only begotten of the Father, full Of grace and truth. And of his fullness. We have received grace upon grace. Wave after wave crashing over us. Grace, grace, grace. Now the Torah, yes, the Torah came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. One more verse. Verse 18. John says, no one has seen God at any time. We want to say, well, well, hold on, hold on, John. What about Abraham? He saw God and had a meal with him under the oaks of memory. What about Jacob? Saw him at the top of that ladder, you know, there at Bethel. What about Moses? He saw God so much that his face started shining. Never mind the 70 elders that saw God on Mount Sinai and ate and drank. Isaiah saw God in in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. And Ezekiel saw visions of God by the river Chebar, and John says, shut up. You don't have to teach the Bible to me. I know the Bible. I know all of that. And I agree with all of it. I accept all of it. But compared to the revelation that we now have in Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son of God who is near the Father's heart, comes right from the Father's heart. He has explained Him to us. So I prefer to preach God as love, as co-suffering, self-giving love. I prefer to preach God as overflowing with wave after wave of grace. I prefer to preach God as having no other disposition towards human beings than unending love. But I will have somebody call me to task. And they'll say, well, he was pretty rough. Jesus was pretty rough on those Pharisees, you know. And those scribes, those chief priests and that bunch, he was pretty rough on them. I said, you know, you have a point there. As I watched Jesus... The grace of God in sandals, walking the world as the pardon of God. Jesus is nothing but gracious toward conventional sinners. You know, the Sabbath breaker, the adulterer, the tax collector, and that like. It seems as if, though, all of the harshness, if we can use that word, that Jesus might be able to muster is reserved for one group of people. The Pharisees and the temple establishment. And what is is it about those guys? These are the ones who preach to the other a God that is ungracious and harsh and difficult to please. And the Pharisees and the temple establishment got the God that they preached to others. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is God among us. And to those who preach to the other to the outsider, God is harsh and unforgiving. God was toward them very strict and very demanding. That's the story. So you can't make a morality lesson out of the parable of the dishonest manager. Or else you just simply have Jesus commending a crook. What the landlord says about the dishonest manager is he's smart. Didn't say he was good. Didn't say he was just. Didn't say he was right. Said, that guy, he's smart. He knows that the only way he can be saved is for me to be gracious. The only way he can be saved is if he tells others that I am gracious. If he preaches a gospel of grace to others, then he's going to put me in a position where I'm going to play along and be that way with Him. Disorienting. Drawing us out of the matrix where everything is uh, reciprocal. Reciprocal and retributive justice. Drawing us out of that world into a world that is a kind of parallel universe, the parallel universe of God's grace. Because really, here is what I've become convinced of. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. In fact, there's never been a time when God was not like Jesus, but we haven't always known this. But now we do. Amen.